Father, we thank you that you live in the praises of your people, Lord. Father, come live in us. Come live in all that we do. May not just our voices praise you in song, Lord, but may our whole lives scream out praises to you and to pointing to people to your kingdom and to who you are, Lord. God of Jacob, would you come and wrestle with us this morning? We may have come one way, but may we leave another. Father God, we pray today would be a time where we contend with you, our God. Where we wouldn't let go of you until you bless us. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you. Come and be with us. Come and change us from the inside out, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our second week of the new series we're doing called um, Ika, if you follow Hebrew. If not, it's called How. Um, that's the original name of the book we're studying, which is Lamentations. And so the second chapter is what we're looking at today. It's a book of like five poems. It's all like really good artistic expression. It's like really, really deep and it is like really well written. I mean, incredibly well written. Um, today, hopefully, after we get through this, you'll realize maybe a bit more about what genius um, this chapter really, really is. It's quite a depressing place though. It's pretty depressing. This, um, I'm not gonna lie, Lamentations. Um, we avoid it because of phones. Um, no, we avoid it because it's kind of depressing and it's kind of somber. And I think it's a book in the Bible that's really neglected. I said last week and I will say again this week, there's three theologies in this book and that is a theology of pain, which you won't go very far in life if you don't have a theology on pain because um, you'll, you'll, you'll enter suffering and you'll be like, why? And then there's a theology of sin, which kind of underpins and undergirds a theology of pain. And then there's like a theology of restoration, redemption, reconciliation, any of those three R's, whichever one you want to roll with. Um, it's kind of core to this book. Now, I was reminded while reading this, it really kind of struck a, a core like nerve with me. It really kind of connected with me as I read this particular chapter because a couple of months ago, um, I shared a little bit. I went through like a really, really tough patch, like a really low point in my life. And um, I remember one day in particular, there's this picture, my parents who are here today, um, we swapped them for my wife. My wife is at home, she's got morning sickness, so we've kind of swapped over today. Um, but there's this picture in my parents' house in the living room and it's right there on the, on the window ledge. And it's a picture of me on my first day of school. And there's this, there's this cracking little boy who's about five years of age, huge smile, just excited with life, excited to be there, and just really like happy about everything. And I saw this picture, and when I saw it recently, there was a time when I was just holding it in my hands, and I just broke. It just like everything in me shattered, and I just couldn't stop crying. And my wife was, was holding me, she was hugging me, she was kissing me, she was praying for me. Because something inside me broke. Because see, when I saw this picture, there's this thing that broke in me. Because as I looked at this picture of this boy that was me, I remembered that five-year-old. I remembered his zest for life, his happiness, his joy, his bounce. And I was looking at the picture. At the same time I was looking at the picture, there's this glass sheet covering it. And I can see me looking in at the picture. And something inside me broke because I was like... Somewhere along the way, the aspirations and the hopes of this little kid are dead and they're gone. And who I am now doesn't really connect with the kid of the picture I see. And I was just broken inside and I was hurting. 
And I guess there are these moments in life which we all can relate to where you go to sleep with this, this knowledge, this understanding of the world that is kind of certain that we all wake up with a certain amount of joy. We take that joy and that happiness for granted sometimes. And here's what I mean. Have you ever had that moment where you go to sleep and then when you wake up, you feel like normal, fine, okay, and then you remembered, oh, that person's dead. They're not going to be in my life anymore. But when you woke up, you're so used to a particular system, you hadn't really thought about it. And there's that moment, then it just dawns on you, it hits, oh, granddad's gone. They're not going to be here to share these moments in life anymore. How am I going to get through that? Or, or you wake up and you're like, that relationship is dead. That person that you told that you, you are crazy in love with them and they have said, I do not feel the same way. And you have that moment where you wake up and, and everything's okay and then bang, that hits you. Or whatever it is for you or whatever point in time. You think of that moment where you wake up and you're like, ah, that's not there. This isn't going to be the same. Am I going to be okay? How am I going to be with this? Now for this group of people in this passage, it is like, Way, way past that, way past that. We think of this as like war and today is Remembrance Sunday and we have a beautiful position because we remember the First World War, the Second World War and it's horrible, loads of people died and we remember that but we're on the winning side and our way of life continues. For this group of people in Lamentations, their way of life is completely gone and I mean gone. I don't mean just as in like the occupational, the occupational therapy, occupying force has taken over and they're continuing with their subculture. They're not. The Babylonians have done this great strategy where they conquered them, destroyed all the landmarks that had any meaning to them, destroyed their temple, which was everything to them, dragged their best people away, dispersed them throughout the empire, gave them new names and gave them a new culture and made them live a different lifestyle, um, eat different foods and they stripped away period by period everything from them that they would no longer remember and identify with their previous identity. They would live in a world where they would wake up in the morning and they would be like, oh, that's gone. Everything's gone. Nothing is the same. There would be no point of reference because every point of reference for everything they'd ever loved had been stripped away. And that is why we have this book. And for all of us, there are going to be moments in our lives where we encounter pain and suffering where the reference point that we care about has shifted and it brings up questions. Last week we looked at, it's okay to have room to vent. A lot of times as Christians, we don't allow room to vent. We just think everyone has to be perfect even when they're going through it all. And we try and just tell people truth. And actually sometimes what they, that's not what they need right there. They need space to be heard. God allows them space to be heard in this book. He allows them to say some pretty stern stuff, some stuff which theologically I've listened to about 20 different rabbis this week try and make sense of the rudeness <laughs> that is in this because they're quite brutal towards God and they have this amazing way of making it all fit neatly together but um, you can't really do that, it doesn't actually work. And so what I want to say though is this poem is acrostic again so it's the A to Z or the alpha to Tau in their language, there's only 22 letters in the alphabet hence there are 22 verses. Um, and so it's an A to Z. So it's not just mindless venting. This is well thought through. So the fact these statements are made that are quite aggressive and at times rude to God um, are well thought through. They're not actually just like a, I've lost my call. I'm just chucking this stuff down. It's an A to Z. It's really well thought out. Not only that, the structure of this particular poem 
And it's word, the wordplay in this poem, by the way, is insane. I would need like four hours to explain to you how crazy these bars are. You, you don't understand. Like in Hebrew, this is just absolutely ridiculous. But the first structure starts off with the first verse letting us know the scene. And it says this. It, it sets the whole theme for the whole chapter. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. His footstool is the Ark of the Covenant, um, the temple, and Jerusalem specifically. But if you break it right down, the most important thing is the Ark of the Covenant. So he's talking about the temple. This particular chapter is really all about that as the central focus. But there's this amazing structure. Verses 2 to 5 political landscape, um, six to seven, religious implications, um, verses eight to nine are the fate of the city, nine to 12, the fate of the people, 13 to 17, there's an analysis, 18 to 19, there's an outcome, and 20 to 22, there's kind of like a conclusion, the fulfillment of the exhortation. And so we're going to read through the chapter, and I'm going to pause in a few various places, but I just wanted to give you the overall structure before we kind of enter into this bad boy. So in verse two, the political landscape down to verse 5. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. So it's all about its rulers and the repercussions here. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand, his protection, in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand, set like a foe. He has killed all who are delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like a fire. This, verse 4, is a bar of all bars. This was just like mad crazy. Like the, the language used, he says he has bent his bow. The word it uses for bow is the same word in the Hebrew for the spectrum in the rainbow. It's saying his promise of protection. It talks about his right hand. He's taken the bow over us. He's bent it the other way and he's pointing the arrow down at us. It's taken an imagery that they've known as this solid picture of safety. This is what I'm talking about. This poem has got mad literacy skills, mad pictures, mad metaphors, which for the Hebrew people as they read this would be like, wow. And the other thing that's really struck me about this particular chapter is it's very hard to tell who the enemy is because again and again it's suggested that the Lord is the enemy. He's talking about him being like an enemy and that's really significant and we're going to pick up on that later but that just blew my mind when I realized the link in that particular language that's being used is it's so loaded here he has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe he has killed all who are delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion he has poured out his fury like a fire the Lord has become like an enemy again it's reaffirming that he has swallowed up Israel he has swallowed up all in its palaces he has laid ruins, its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of, Z of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden. We're into verse 6 now, so we're heading, heading into religious in implications. Laid in ruins its meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. That is so key. It's tying in with the Babylonians, but the point, the finger is being pointed at the Lord here. So it's like they've been accused of basically in the past overlooking religious festivals, ignoring the ordinances of the, of the Lord, not taking Sabbath serious, 
not treasuring Sabbath. Sabbath was a beautiful idea, and I want to encourage all of you, if you don't have a Sabbath in your life, it's not only like in God's law, but it's actually one of the greatest things you can have. It's not just about what you don't do on a day, it's what you do do on a day. It's, it's like enjoying the whole week coming to its conclusion, resting in the joy of the completion of that week, so you have a cutoff. If you don't have a cutoff, you just live in perpetual stress. You have a cutoff that closes that week, says that was good, let's celebrate God's goodness, and then it also does the next thing, it ties into the next week, it looks ahead of what is to come and it celebrates the goodness of God that they're going to enjoy. And it comes to the close of the Sabbath, which is where they're longing for the next Sabbath. It's something they look forward to. They'd taken it for granted, they'd abused it, and now he's saying, you have made us forget Sabbath. So they're living in a place now that will not let them observe the Sabbath. The Babylonians are deliberately stripping away their culture and what matters to them. And their festivals are taken away as well. Their festivals are the core of their cultural identity, like Passover. It's remembering you were slaves, you're now free. It's remembering who you are. It's remembering what's been done to you. It's about remembering how you're supposed to respond in those situations. Their whole identity has been stripped back from them. That's the religious implications of this situation. And in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The order that he put in place within their nation to bring about his plans and purposes are gone. The Lord has scorched his altar disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They, are, they raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. So this is now talking about the fate of the city. The city is destroyed. And in verse 9, her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her, and then it moves on now, transitions to the fate of the people. Her, kings and prin- her king and princes are among the nations, the dispersion. The law is no more. That's huge for them. The law for us, we see it as in like God's do and don't. This is what you don't do. And we see it as like, oh God, you're such a buzzkill. For them, it wasn't like that. They were slaves in Egypt. They had no rights. They had nothing. The law was something to be treasured. They come out of slavery like a person comes out of prison and they come out all institutionalized, don't know how to live, don't know what to do. The law of God, they receive 50 days after this slavery is a God who loves them saying, this is your identity, this is who you are. That is no more. The core reference point for their lives and their culture is missing. The law is no more. Her her prophets find no vision from the Lord. That would have really freaked them out because in every situation, there'd always been a prophet who was kind of saying, um, there's hope, there's this, there's that. And then um, that's gone. The, elder, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and have put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured to the ground. This person is saying, when I review what I saw, when I have those flashbacks of those situations, I throw up. I throw up. This person has really gone through some traumatic stuff and remembering what's happened and even looking around at their present situation brings such trauma to them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. There's huge starvation. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? These kids get hammered early. Uh, They put our culture to shame. Um, As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Verse 13, now we're moving into the analysis. This is where it kind of tries to make sense of everything that has been described. Um, 
What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken you to that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. This is key. This is all about a theology of pain. You've suffered. Who can heal you? Who can bring about healing for this kind of suffering? But here's the key thing, a good theology of sin. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your sin. They haven't brought up the topic of what can make things right. Until we have this theology down, we can't even move towards restoration. A theology of sin is the only way to ever move to restoration. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid it and get to restoration. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work at all. So if you want to see your fortunes restored, you have to have that, that, that exposing of, of sin. We have to acknowledge it before God. But have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss, they wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the, all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They, they hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the, ah, I love this. Ah, this is the day we have longed for. It's just, um, I don't know why I did Alan Partridge there, but it's just how I felt that best translates from the original Hebrew. No, I, I didn't, I, I lied. But um, now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down. I love that. Let's throw down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. So here we transition now. That's the end of the analysis period. Now we move into um, the outcome. Their heart cried to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Here's the key verse, verse 19. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. He's saying, guys, you know what? Things are gone. So in the verse before that, Things are gone. Weep, 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 weep. Get it all out. Jesus says, um, blessed are those who mourn, they should be comforted. Get it all out of your system. But if you want to do some real crying, it's time to cry to the Lord. Because if you haven't noticed, the kids you still have that are alive are dying of hunger. We need to get back into the right place with God. We need to reconnect with Him. We need restoration. We need to transition to this, this new place. We can't carry on this way. And it says this thing. It says, pour out your heart like water before the presence of your Lord. They had this like thirst offering which would come before the sacrifice. They'd pour out mainly strong alcohols normally, not necessarily water. But um, Paul references to this, this particular picture um, in, in Philippians, he says, even if all I am is poured out as, as the thirst offering, the, the water offering, if I'm just poured, poured out, if that's all I am, just poured out, then I'm okay with that, is what he's saying. This is Paul. Paul's pretty great. He's pretty epic. He's written most of the New Testament. And his attitude on life is, even if all I am is just something God is just pouring out for others, I am cool with that. I'm down. And then he writes to Timothy this. He says, he, he, he's there theorizing maybe that's all I am he might have had higher hopes aspirations for something else um, he may have seen life being different in the way it poured it, it poured out literally for him but then to Timothy he writes this he comes to the conclusion that is what's happening and he says even now I am being poured out 
as like this thirst offering, this like water offering as a sacrifice to God. And sometimes we have this idea of who we want to be and we see living a lifestyle as a certain thing about gaining. We see the cup and we want more in the cup. Whereas actually sometimes God isn't looking to put more in the cup. Sometimes God's looking to pour us out. And so the Christian life isn't always about gaining, 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 gaining. Sometimes we have to come to a place like Paul, well, maybe I'm just here to be poured out on other people's lives. Maybe even now I'm being poured out. And these people in this place of suffering, they're looking at it, they've realized they've lost everything and what little they have, they're like, man, I'm just going to pour myself out before the Lord because I invested in everything else and I've lost everything. They're in this real kind of desperate place. And then verses 20 to 22 um, look, O Lord, and see with whom you have dealt with us. How with whom you have dealt with us? And this is this is pretty. This is kind of paints a really graphic picture of how, especially for me and Jody at the moment, as Jody's pregnant. This is like really kind of a horrific verse that really hit us hard. With whom you have dealt with us? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should the priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? That's how messed up things got. In the dust of the streets, like the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day. My terror is on every side. On the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. It's a really brutal, brutal passage. And as you read it, you can really hear, and I talked about this last week, this protest. There's kind of a protest in what they're saying. There's a protest kind of towards God. All the way through it, they're comparing him to an enemy. They're talking about the promises he made in the past and now he's turned them against them and he's aiming the bow, the rainbow as a bow, an arrow at them. And these people are in this bleak place. But he's allowed them this room to go through this discussion and to have this. And um, today is Remembrance Sunday. And in World War I, when Britain announced that it was going to war, it sent out um, messages throughout the whole empire and in some of the most um, remote places in Africa a message was sent out saying arrest all foreign nationals we are at war and they responded we've arrested and I'm going to get the numbers wrong but you'll get the picture we've arrested three French two Austrians three Germans two Belgians one American Please let us know who we're at war with. So they've grabbed all these guys, thrown them in prison. And you know what? When things get painful, when suffering comes, when tough times appear on us, we can be in a state of panic and not know who our enemy is. We can sometimes not see who our enemy is. And in this passage, there's a little bit of, there's two verses or a verse pointing at false prophets being a part of the reason and their own actions, and their own sin. But the majority of it, they're talking about God being like an enemy, like an enemy, like an enemy. The person who's writing this is still too fearful to quite go, you're the enemy, but they're being so suggestive. They're going as far as they're willing to go to accuse God and to point the finger at him. And they're pointing it in that way. And you know what? When things get tough, sometimes it's hard and we can't realize who the enemy is. And sometimes I've heard um, different Christians I've known friends and family down the years where I've heard them where they've had their wife dying in their care and they know they've got a debilitating disease which only ends one way and as they nurse them all the way to the end and their wife is gone and their faith is just dissipated and they're here and they're looking 
at their situation and the words that come out of their words are words like this. How can I believe in a loving God? In that situation, they've missed who the enemy is. They've missed the theology of pain, the theology of sin, and the theology of restoration. They've missed the point that sin leads to death. And they've got their focus on the wrong person. He is not the one who has done this to them. Sin has brought about this situation. They were warned countless times from prophets, you go this way, you're leaving me. My right hand disappears. Don't do this. Don't go there. Don't leave me. This will not be good for you. And they ignored and they went their own way and they ended up in this place. But instead, he's being suggested the whole way through. I'm going to finish on the first verse. It says, How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. This is a bar as well, by the way. Um, the footstool thing I talked about relating to the ark, but when it says he has not remembered, wow, this is loaded, loaded language. This is tying into the Exodus story, which we started this whole church on with the He Hears series. There's this moment where the children of Israel are in slavery. They're crying out to God because of their pain and their suffering as slaves. And it says he heard their cry and he remembered his promise to Abraham. He remembered that they would be a race that would be like the stars in the sky. He remembered his covenant, Isaac, the promise of a son that couldn't be born, that God promises to be with them through the impossible, that God keeps his promises. And then the promise and the covenant he remembered with Jacob, the God who would wrestle with us and change us through it, that wouldn't let go of us until we were restored, until we were changed. And they hear in this passage, he has the nerve to make this statement. He has not remembered his footstool. And the Ark of the Covenant comes about as they leave Egypt free. He's saying, it's great. You did that then, but what about now? He feels forgotten. But you know what the beauty in this verse is? That even in referring to that particular point, he's referring to the same answer to his situation and to our situation. He's saying, I don't feel remembered. I look around me and the suffering I see and I struggle to see a loving God. I look around me and I see the life that I have and I, I struggle to see a God who delivers a people from slavery. I just don't see it personally. I'm seeing women eating their young and things like this. I, I don't really see a loving God anymore. Um, you've forgotten us. You have not remembered us. You have not remembered your covenant. Well, you know what? There were people in slavery that would have been feeling forgotten as well. But you know what? He heard. And he, he, he delivered them and he brought them out. And maybe today there are areas in your life where you feel forgotten. And maybe like how I started this talk with me holding a picture frame, looking at the five-year-old version of me full of hopes and dreams and passions and desire and life and looking at it and feeling forgotten. I want you to know that just like in this story, he hadn't forgotten them. He hadn't forgotten the people he's connecting to in the past. And he hasn't forgotten you. God has remembered and I want to suggest that today as we go through Remembrance Sunday as we remember the First World War and the story that I shared that maybe sometimes when we hurt and when we go through suffering we forget who the enemy really is and we forget what the real problem is and when you narrow it down it will always lead to selfishness always but in 1 Corinthians verse 20 it says that Christ is reconciling all things to himself in heaven and on earth. He's reconciling us. He's bringing us back. I'm just going to pray for us today and um, that will wrap things up.
Father God, I thank you that you made room in your word for a fantastic book like Lamentations, which is full of stuff that most of us would never dare or have the guts to say to you. But you allow us this example that we can come to you, that we can freely express ourselves to you with our hurt, and that you will lead us to a place of seeing things clearly. Father, sometimes we don't see who the enemy is. Sometimes we don't see it because we're too clouded by our pain, our suffering, and most often, really, we're clouded by our sin. Father, we just pray that this week would be a week where we would see clearly, where we would see you in our suffering, where we would see you leading us out of our sin, that we would see you restoring us and making us whole. And Father God, above all of those things, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in us that enables us to be the type of people that accept those that we hear bringing out their hurts, their pains, their disappointments, that we can allow them the same room to express themselves, that we can be instruments of restoration in their lives. Father, this week we pray that you would um, be with us and that you would use us, that you would guide us. And Father God, we also pray as we go through this series that our ears would really prick up to hear those around us that are really hurting, that we can serve them, that we can love them, that we can give them the room to hurt and that we can give them the room to take their own time round as they see what's really wrong, the root cause of it, which is always sin, Father, and that we'll see you bring restoration to so many lives of those around us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.